0: The world of, of security and slavery have been intertwined for for millennia, really. You know, uh, the way in which what we might call modern slaves, this idea of sort of modern globalised labour exploitation and its intersection with private security is a relatively modern phenomenon. And, you know, there there is a sort of a dance of the deaf going on because the law enforcement people don't really want to know because they're often being sort of paid off on the side. The agents, the central agents, don't certainly don't want any of this being regulated because they can plausibly claim that their supply chain is clean, even though they're, they're not looking into it. And there's a very good chance that they're also benefiting from the illicit payments that are being made. So there's a whole kind of web of stuff going on here, which most audits will never uncover and unless you're really looking at it in depth unless you put some effort and some time and some money into uncovering it you'll never see in uh, so 2009 finally they got round to, to thinking about what to do and they put in place this this sort of regime of voluntary standards so yeah we ended up with this sort of very light touch voluntary uh, voluntary standard scheme of which of course they international code of conduct is one part. In terms of my area of of interest, the the kind of bonded labor issues that underpin labor exploitation within private security supply chains, uh, the voluntary standards mechanism has been, I think, a a failure. You know, the oversight mechanisms are weak, the regulatory mechanisms are weak. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that the outcomes from a kind of operational perspective have been bad. In many cases they've been quite good. But from a human rights perspective it's it's pretty negative
1: Welcome to Unsolicited Bridge Picks. I'm your host, Charles Winkleman, and with me, as always.
2: I'm Brie Bills. I think this should we should note that this is a podcast introduction of shame.
1: Of shame.
2: Of of shame, yes. The part two shame introduction. Why <laughs> the, is- because it is an unintentional part two. <laughs> Just... It was not our intent.
1: But when we started talking with Pit Fiend, it went a little uh, long. Um, part one, we focused more on Vermont history, recent history between the Madeline Cunin girl boss, Wing of the democratic party and the bernie bro progressive lady um, (laughs) wing um and and kind of the history between those two very briefly
2: pretty a pretty superficial history but just establishing that there are these clear two camps in vermont especially over the past 40 years
1: and one of them really hates the other one
2: (laughs) we'll let you decide (laughs) in this episode we use molly's Professional trajectory to look into more of neoliberalism at the global scale and how this dangerous mentality um, is being carried from this huge global stage into these very local politics. I don't even know how do we, how do we talk about um, this? I mean, I, we talk about slavers. I mean, I, I think
1: like <laughs> we go into more detail about her resume and we talk about you know what Pitfein really means by. Molly Gray, CIA.
2: Yeah, last time I felt unsettled releasing the first half of this episode because our thesis was really unresolved. And Pit Fiend talks talks about the banality of everything that this thread kind of has unearthed. But in this part, we really are talking about more how these kinds of experiences should give us pause and should make us wonder... How they're going to affect our governing leaders?
1: And I would just say that you should be concerned by Molly's background. It's not, it's not a positive. Mm-hmm. Defending slavers is not something that Vermont should be uplifting.
2: And again, not unique to Molly. She went and got the pedigree that a lot of people are looking for, and I'm sure it was in good yeah. faith.
1: Yeah, we really do also in, in this uh, second part talk about how Vermont fits into the the global neoliberal. Order, I guess, and how in a lot of ways it's not just Molly who who is connected to this uh, national security sort of fraternity uh, or sorority, I guess, since they're girl bosses. Um, and how Burlington really has a lot of people and organizations, particularly for its size, that is involved in, in slavers and the extraction
2: industry. Uh, gross.
3: So after attending the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies, Molly returned to Vermont and went to Vermont law. Credential wise, not impressive. I think it does in some subspecialties. I don't actually know what she studied. Drone warfare. (laughs) Well, and that, you beat me to the punch. One of the more notable things she got into there that kind of continued this trend of an interest in international violence, for lack of a better term, Uh, Molly put on a, a, she co-chaired a conference. Um with a member of the Federalist Society, which I don't think that means that she, you know, worked, worked with him any closer. It was just kind of funny. Uh, uh, the panel, uh, addressed the legality of us policy of extrajudicial killing under <laughs> international humanitarian law, law of armed conflict, the us constitution. And they're all pretty chummy with each other in this. Uh, ma- maybe you guys can add a link to the, it's on YouTube, a video, it's a whole an hour, 45 minutes of this panel. And, uh, I mean, it's pretty bone-chilling stuff. The entire panel was actually titled, Are You on the List? The Legal Implications of Extrajudicial Assassination.
2: My name is Molly Gray, and I'm the co-chair of the International Law Society here at Vermont Law School. And it's my pleasure to introduce the second and perhaps most anticipated panel of the day, entitled, Are You on the List? The Legal Implications of Targeted Killing.
3: It's, it's interesting to see people in training like learning and haggling over the language the lawyers speak around this kind of activity, too. I think that's the biggest thing I got from this. These are really young lawyers in training, like learning how to sanitize talking about double-tapping people with drones and stuff. Well, actually, this wasn't about drones. This was actually about assassinations.
2: Again, not taking not taking sides on the morality or ethics of extrajudicial killings, but rather just looking at the legal side. The
3: process of, of regulating. It kind of snaps you back and forth. There's a dissonance to it where they inject this kind of, like, inside humor into it while very blasé speaking about really evil things
2: really evil through the lens of international human rights i
3: mean really by i think any moral like killing people is fairly well accepted as a moral tenet
2: but these targeted killings in the context of war and those kinds of things you're not going to sell that to a ton of people the idea that these are targeted extrajudicial killings that may not necessarily even have really solid reasons for stepping in and killing these people it's kind of uh well, and,
1: and it's one of those things too where the moment you are saying it's okay to assassinate other countries political leaders
3: yeah i mean it's interesting this was even a discussion in a u.s law school i mean i guess i guess not but uh the hubris of these of extending these people's jurisdiction into international law unilaterally
1: what that makes me think of pit Fiend was a thing that i found like shortly before we started recording, which was uh, a Molly Gray presentation that she did. And it was like a 10 slide. There was a Prezi. But the ninth one has some questions that I want to read. The questions aren't like, is this good or bad? Most people would say these are bad. But so the, the question at the end of her like presentation is, do you think that the U.S. needs to focus specifically on intelligence and tactical operations, such as drone strikes, and worry less about political and economic improvements, Second question. We often talk about security and intelligence in regions such as the Middle East. Do you think there are different factors at play in Africa as opposed to the other regions
3: of the world. Was that at Vermont Law?
2: It was 2014.
3: So it was probably moving into the yeah, next phase yeah, of her career so. here, which I think is probably the biggest <laughs> piece that Woo! makes the point we're trying to make. So after attending Vermont Law, Molly was recruited to help launch the International Code of Conduct Association. Sounds so nice. Right? The ICOCA, <laughs> it's ostensibly meant to be a, like a protocol like almost a Geneva Convention type agreement to curb human rights abuses among mercenaries which
2: private the security ICOCA, contractors
3: PSCs that actually language is fairly specific to them most of the time you hear the term private military contractors PMC
2: there's also PMSCs like uh, private military and security.
3: I'm always just fascinated, especially in this like niche world about the way they use language to kind of sterilize all this and how particular often they are. It's a bunch of right. fucking lawyers. Uh, like they love this shit.
2: And I was is like, they're so much worse than mercenaries, but we can get into that okay. in, in a minute. But I do want to point out that the UN created a group to study human rights violations by PSCs. And this is what it's called. Okay. Ready? The United Nations Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries as a Means of Violating Human Rights and Impeding the Exercise of the Right of the Peoples to Self-Determination. What's it in French? Yeah, that's a good question. you
3: do that one more time?
2: The United Nations Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries as a Means of Violating Human Rights and Impeding the Exercise of the Right of the Peoples to Self-Determination, which later they just referred to as the Working Group. But it specifically was created to study human rights violations by PSCs.
3: That name is a human rights violation. <laughs> I hate these
2: people. That's the type of
1: name that you would expect Ben Franklin to write on like a pamphlet. Yeah, with of a, with the weird S's
3: and shit that look like lowercase <laughs> <Yeah>. F's.
1: <laughs> Where you're like, the title is half the document. Why didn't you just come up with some other (laughs) names. um
2: but yeah so that is when i read that i was like okay fair enough if the un is calling them mercenaries i guess i can't i can't fault pitfiend but i will say i will go on to argue that they are fucking worse than mercenaries
3: they're certainly not simply extra national forces paid to fight for a national entity They, they are in fact worse they're private mercenaries they're fighting not for nations but Businesses in a lot of cases.
2: The the thing with mercenary, it has kind of a connotation that it's associated with with people working within wars, with yeah. within conflict zones, right? And that's that's not what we're talking about here. So um, and,
1: and I think too, it makes me think of someone who has a background in some sort of state military. Well, which do. is there.
2: Yeah, which is you usually
1: are ex-military. Because I listened to a podcast from the ICOCA that they started uh, back in like March. And most of it was where they were just like talking about industry changes with COVID and how to protect security uh, (laughs) providers. Uh, But this one guy who is in the industry and is like the progressive version of it. The Brandon uh, Del Pozo of mercenaries? Yes, yeah, no, pretty much. He's a British guy getting his PhD. So it's exactly... (laughs) this guy was actually even more progressive than brandon because he essentially admitted absolutely he essentially admitted a there was no way to actually you you, it's always going to violate human rights but he also talked about how most of the private security providers come from countries like nepal Mm -hmm. and they really don't have a lot of of training compared to more western militaries um on top of that you're
3: talking about Blackwater Academy some of the British yeah, firms yes. that do this and you know like there's some variances there. But the thing the thing he talked about was that a lot of
1: even a lot of the workers are actually bonded workers which is uh, often mm. another form of gentle slavery.
2: Sometimes you got to slave where gen- They have to
1: pay thousands of dollars to a recruiter to get this job. Hey, it's a it's
3: indentured servitude.
0: Third country national workers see the payment of a fee to secure a job as a kind of form of job guarantee. So, you know, I've paid my three and a half, four thousand dollars or whatever it is. So I will therefore definitely get this job. And so and agents who are taking this money think, well, he's paid, so he's definitely going to go. The employer thinks, well, he's paid, so he's going to keep his mouth shut. Uh, and he's going to work hard. So it kind of works for everyone in the in the in in the piece. You know what, what it doesn't work for clearly is the sort of respect for international human rights and and for the rule of law. Because in every place these practices are illegal, and there seems to be, dare I say, a, a sort of willful blindness amongst many of the private security companies, many of whom kind of get the problem and they know what's happening. And to be honest, you know, a, a system of voluntary standards where there is a sort of commercial imperative to get things done quickly and cheaply because, you know, that's what that's what outsourcing is. You know, it's it's quote unquote efficient because margins are very uh, you know, margins are necessarily thin if you've got competitive tenders. And that means there isn't really the the, the sort of bandwidth to go engaging in lengthy and expensive and and comprehensive audit processes etc so this this kind of race to the bottom almost guarantees that there won't be any meaningful oversight of of that difficult and hard to spot problem
1: yeah so it's like indentured servants are being hired to be slavers towards yeah it's just it's the, the entire fucking industry is fucked up
2: going forth with the ICOCA definition from their website they say we reduce risk in the security supply chain by conducting due diligence on our members and affiliates monitoring their activities certifying their operations providing guidance and handling complaints conducting due diligence is always a is always a way to make things happen right uh, they they also are they, they exist to uh, implement and oversee the the code uh, the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Service Providers, which is an instrument that articulates standards for the private security industry by incorporating international human rights and humanitarian law norms. So it sounds good. Like, that sounds wholesome and lovely and wonderful.
3: I think we should make clear here that like, what the ICOCA fundamentally did was let these people write their own rules.
2: Well, and so this is the thing. The code itself, right? The code is a voluntary code of conduct launched in 2010 that was developed out of discussions between PMSCs, right? Between these security contractors, governments, and civil society. So what you're saying is they kind of wrote the rules. And not only that, these rules are fucking voluntary. voluntary.
3: (laughs) But they also, (laughs) they basically wrote, they, they legitimized existing practices like as, oh, that's okay under the code and didn't change what they were doing. So now they can say that they reduced atrocities because they they redefined what constituted an atrocity, or they can just not.
2: <laughs> it's completely toothless, right? But if I may, an important complement to the code is actually called "quote the voluntary principles on security and human rights," which just sounds hilarious to me. Anything that's a voluntary principles with regards to human rights is fucked. Like that is not. That is not acceptable.
3: I do have a bit. I do get a kick out of when liberal institutions like back their way into leftist analysis. It's like, well, yeah, rights are a spook. Like, <laughs> like that. Rights are a spook. Rights yeah. don't exist. We make them up. There's nothing God-given about them. We can just change them or ignore them whenever we want. They and don't exist. Do, and we do,
2: especially. We absolutely US. do.
3: The system, the international system, actually rests on violating rights. It <laughs> wouldn't function without. Like, like, we we write these things down, we have all these agreements, we have these institutions, and we wink because none of it would work without violating rights for certain people at certain times.
2: Right, like, imperialism itself does not work. Yes. It fundamentally violates people's human rights because, because if you look at individual people having the right to, to self-determination and, and deciding where they want to live, for example.
3: A lot of this is essentially kayfabe for like liberals in the imperial court. You know, like it's a lot of paper, it's a lot of people with a lot of degrees.
2: I'm sorry, doing... I'm just hearing Star Wars. <laughs> like the Imperial Court. you can
3: picture
1: picture it in a big scroll. That's uh what the Emperor and Darth Vader were able to do. They
3: cut through that paperwork. Yeah, they dissolved the Imperial Senate, <laughs> which we should also do.
2: We're, we're pointing out that this is a, quote, international soft law initiative, which, you know, when it's soft, it's kind of difficult for it to penetrate the depths of these human rights issues, you know? I think
3: Molly herself actually really sums this thought up speaking on behalf of the I- ICOCA. The ICOCA does not take a position on the legitimacy or moral value of PSCs, but rather recognizes industry growth and the services provided by PSCs in a variety of complex environments globally. It's all very corporate speak. You, you referenced a line earlier where they talk just like this. And it's its interesting how they're moving away from the language of like international law and kind of that timber and into corporate America speech. Yeah, it's just,
1: it's an industry yeah. like any other. It's like steel industry, you know? You just gotta treat, it exists and we can't ever get rid of it. And it's a part of our society
2: now. So that quote, that thing that you just quoted was from one article published in the Business and Human Rights Journal titled, Improving Human Rights in the Private Security Industry, Envisioning the Role of the ICOCA in Latin America. And this article outlines numerous examples of PSCs at work, uh, specifically in Honduras, Peru, Guatemala, and Colombia, (laughs) right? And it highlights how deeply the industry's human rights abuses run, saying, quote, in nearly every country in the region, local populations affected by and protesting against the extractive projects have been victims of excessive force and even killings by the PSC's personnel. It's their job. It's literally the their The PSC's job
3: yeah. jobs is to violate human rights. That's why they exist.
1: And to do it with no oversight. Because if it was an actual government, there's often a lease. That's messy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and the article laments that these crimes often occur with Impunity, for a lot of different reasons. But yeah, so here's the thing with PSCs in Latin America. They're almost always protecting the extractive industries, oil, gas, and mining activities, and also large-scale agribusinesses. So looking at you, Chiquita Banana, whoo, um, that require private companies to gain access to extensive amounts of land, right? So extractive industries, by definition, they are coming in and occupying huge amounts of land. And for a lot of companies, um, for example, Colombia, Panama, Guatemala, Peru, and also Honduras, one of the policy traits of these of these countries is that non-renewable resources are state-owned. And uh, mining... I can't have that. Mining company. Well, but listen, <laughs> though. Mining companies and other extractive industries are granted concessions or temporary ownership of such resources. And uh, the extractive industry is often declared to be of public usefulness. So these these countries will privilege these, these industries and that allows these companies to use other resources such as water, soil, forests, whatever, and ex- to establish servitudes for exploitation purposes, right? These concession rights can be exercised for an average of 25 to 30 years, right? And a lot of these lands are, there's overlap, especially with indigenous populations, with what is state-owned land and what is...
3: Unceded indigenous land.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so there's like all this legal blurry areas around this. So of course, this leads to conflicts of interest and involves the risk of not respecting human rights and collective tenure rights, such as, you know, the appropriate processes in terms of prior consultation and free prior and informed consent. That usually does not happen for mining that affects indigenous or peasant, or Afro-descendant communities. And that information that I just said was from a really great, you can read a summary of this article, Impact of the Extractive Industry on the Collective Land and Forest Rights of People and Communities. And so what Molly said earlier about these things often taking place in, quote, complex environments, it's because of clashes between the extractive companies Uh. and local communities, these PSCs often Uh, operate in these, quote, complex environments, which are areas experiencing or recovering from unrest or instability where the rule of law has been substantially undermined and in which the capacity of the state's authority is limited. So these extractive industries and also the security, the PSCs that go along with these extractive industries are moving into this vacuum of jurisdiction and making the rules.
3: I love the quote about complex situations because there's literally international industries, entire apparatus is designed to make this seem complex when really it's the simplest and rawest expression of imperialism <laughs> right. possible. Yeah. It's we pay people with money to go kill people so we can yeah. take their stuff. That's what it is. It's actually very, it's a very simple situation. Is,
2: yeah. And so this, this is like just shitting on PSCs, right? But when I read some of this, Just think about what the ICOCA is doing or can do to curb these human rights violations, right? So for example, we're just going to go through different things that have happened in a couple of countries, right? In Honduras, legislation passed that allowed the sale of thousands of acres of land owned by local residents to agro-industrial firms, sales that were, quote, conducted under duress and without the consent of affected community members, because of course it fucking was. PSCs outnumbered police in the country and used tactics that included killings and forced disappearances of locals to, quote, discourage them from claiming their rights to land that a company sought to control. There has been no retribution for 95 to 98% of these crimes, right? That was in Honduras, right? One country. Surely that's not happening in, oh, in Peru. The mining company Minera Yana Concha Tu Mare. Sorry, I think it's a uh, Minera Yanakocha. I don't know yes. what the rest of what I just said was. Employed the police officers as PSCs to plow over locals' concerns about the environmental consequences of the mining. Like what? Apparently, mining is bad for the environment, and like what? Humans are fucking insatiable. Anyhow, of course, also the PSCs are there to to uh, plow over the disputes of of land ownership, and again all sorts of human rights violations with you know violence disappearances or, or not disappearances as much as uh, forced evictions and all of that and uh in Guatemala don't like you don't even want to get me started in Guatemala <laughs> the Canadian mining company Hud Bay Minerals Inc swept into the chaos after a 1996 peace agreement and started extracting the fuck out of a bunch of indigenous lands while watching PSCs swell to numbers in the hundreds of thousands And those PSCs murdered, shot, raped, etc, 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 the local community, because it's not enough to be forcibly evicted from your home, gang rape has to be the proverbial cherry on top.
3: I'm glad you brought up that number because I think it's a lot of people don't realize. Like, I think when people hear these, even if they're aware of these groups, <clears throat> they think, think 20, of like surgical, 15. special, like, oh, these are like, these are operators no. working. It's like, no, these are standing armies.
2: They are. And in, in places like Guatemala, like after this this peace agreement, right? The, the, the police force and the military were significantly um, reduced. And so these PSCs, outnumber the police force and the military and and uh i also wonder how many of those pscs were hired after leaving yeah those
3: hired right out of it, it's very common to see all over the world they'll recruit along ethnic divisions in the community in the region into the into the mercenary Yeah,
2: groups. in in these cases right you're dealing with this canadian mining company which is like there's whatever canada's got their greasy little fingers in all of the mining and bullshit but the, there were numerous human rights legal cases brought against hmi and you know there are regulations but there's no way to enforce them due to the quote weak judiciary and the overwhelming amount of private security guards in the country like <laughs> you're dealing with people who like There's no way for the government itself to to enforce any of these regulations, and there especially isn't when you've got over 200,000 contractors, mercenaries, slave drivers, whatever you want to call them, in the country. Well,
3: I think you, you nailed why organizations like the ICOCA look the way they do, because what they're trying to do is treat these abuses, these horrific acts as negotiating points in a market system, rather than as criminal acts in a legal system, which is neoliberalism. It's the privatization of law, of of government, of the state entirely.
1: It makes me think about uh, Pitfiend, You said this yesterday, and then Gabrielle and I were talking about it, how, I don't remember the exact quote, but like how imperialism and those tactics have Mm -hmm. moved into the
3: core too. The frontier come home.
1: Yeah. And so I think of, I think about uh, the pipeline fight that happened under Obama I think about Standing, Standing Rock Standing Rock thank you I think about uh, in the uh, Northwest te- Northwest territory in Canada there's huge fights going on between uh, indigenous people there yeah and so like you're seeing it once again come back here to roost
3: after we kind of left I mean we had our own version right here bringing it home the Champlain pipeline
2: yeah, had absolutely. all kinds of yeah. weird
3: legal squabbles um and and ultimately showed that municipal law is not even worth considering for these companies. You know, just completely yeah. powerless to stop this kind of thing. Even you know, even in the court. I
2: wanted to uh, throw in a last example of PSEs at work because Columbia. You know, with Columbia, shit is going to get cinematic, right? So so of course this is a, this is this is amazing. You find some extractive companies using a right wing illegal armed group which was formed to protect private businesses from FARC and other local communist guerrillas, right? (laughs) Like, it's actually an illegal right-wing terrorist group. So, of course, a U.S.-based coal company, Drummond, made bank off of this group's threats, killings, displacements, and all-around abhorrent behavior. Um, but yeah, don't worry. I'm sure it's clean coal. And Chiquita also paid this illegal terrorist organization for their security expertise, right? I Means
3: the Rolling Stones using the Hells <laughs> Angels Rick large on the global scene.
2: But yeah, so th- so this was after after this was already designated a terrorist organization. And guess guess what the wrist slap was for the Chiquita Brands Group? They had to pay
3: the a U.S. Million. Department
2: of Justice twenty five million dollars. Okay. The filing fee. They so they paid an illegal terrorist organization to be <laughs> killing and disappearing and displacing people, and in re- in in turn they had to pay the U.S. Department of Justice like pennies for a, a group like Takeda Brands, and like don't ask me what they did to seek justice in the affected region, but you can bet your ass that the communities that were affected did not get recompense um but yeah so this this paper that i that that talked about all these cases which by the way this paper is arguing for the possible benefits of having the icoca in this region right (laughs) (laughs) the paper concludes that we need to quote create a robust mechanisms to hold pscs responsible for violations which fucking is mind blowing because it's only for quote, these types of human rights violations, you know, like gang rape and forced disappearance and extrajudicial killings and whatnot, but not for the fundamental violation of taking land that isn't yours to deplete it to death and then export any financial gains away from those whom you've robbed. Like that by definition, like the extractive industries by definition are committing human rights violations. So how the fuck, and this is why I was like, Charles, they are not mercenaries, they're fucking slave drivers. It doesn't make any sense. You have these people enslaved yeah. and you are hiring people to make sure that they don't fucking step out of line. And what the ICOCA exists to do is exactly what you were saying earlier, Pit Fiend. it's legitimizing the slave driver's presence there. Like that doesn't fucking make sense. It's like, oh, yes, they're slave drivers, but they're not abusing the people in this moment. Like maybe those people shouldn't be slaves, but like we're not making a moral judgment on, on slavery. We're just saying that we can make these slave drivers not beat them to death maybe, or-
3: Good news, we're we're sending the legitimizer to Montpelier. <laughs> the frontier is coming home.
2: The ICOCA exists to encourage its members to exercise due diligence, as we said earlier, in getting PSCs to respect human rights like freedom of expression, freedom of association, whatever, and what's this deprivation of property. So that's again, like, the ICOCA exists to exercise due diligence with these human rights and like, that's not something that you can actually do by definition. An aside is that the funding for the ICOCA is all fucked up because it's, it's all from member organizations and governments, right? So it's like most of the funding is coming from.
3: Coming from mercenaries.
2: Exactly. Slave.
3: Mercenary slavers. I'm fine. We can use that term if you, if it makes you feel yeah. better. I'm perfectly comfortable using that term.
2: And so in the, the context for the, the quote that you read from Molly earlier, here's the quote immediately before that quote, in Latin America, the phenomenon of of private security also promotes an inequality of security. Wealthy businesses and individuals living in violent societies pay for safety that is out of reach of the average citizen and in this process become less invested in improving public collective security, right? So that's another thing that we don't even have time to fucking talk about, right? That's what the PSCs are doing also is making their communities less safe. And Molly's reaction to that is that the ICOCA does not take a position on the legitimacy or moral value of PSCs, but rather recognizes industry growth, yada, 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 because... Long live the market.
3: I would love to shout out Violent Society, a really sweet Philly punk band.
1: (laughs) One one of the podcasts, I listened to all like eight of them, nine of them. It was terrible. My brain melted. They talk about how there's like this vacuum. There's this safety vacuum and everyone deserves the right to safety. Like I love the way they frame it. But how are they going to get that safety? Because the governments don't have enough money to keep them safe. So not only are these are these PMCs, aren't they? Not only are they not coming in just to help these extractive industries; they're actually helping to keep the locals safe, who otherwise would just be destroyed by But these. they are
2: absolutely not, as was just <laughs> given the safest position four...
3: is being dead.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's no further danger when you're dead.
2: Yeah, and so here's here's the fucked up thing, right? So great, yes, the, the PSCs are terrible. We need to regulate them and make sure that they don't do human rights violations, whatever. But the only stick the ICOCA carries is expulsion from the organization, right? (laughs) They don't report violators to national authorities and they hardly have any protections for human rights defenders and activists who report violations, okay? (laughs) So, I mean, there's the guidance on company grievance mechanisms, which Molly actually oversaw the development of, but that only offers standardization There's no way of enforcing these standards, quote. This is a quote from that same thing advocating for the ICOC, by by the way, which is fucking mind boggling. But because it's a voluntary association, the ICOCA relies heavily on PSC's reputational concerns and market pressure for compliance Mm. with the code. And it comes down to this. Quote, client-based market pressure alone may not be enough to successfully implement the ICOC in Latin America, where many extractive companies that hire PSCs are also involved in human rights abuses. Using the market to regulate depends on clients actually valuing human rights and sufficient market power to make compliance with the code a factor that businesses compete on. So that is how fucked like we're talking about making the market care about human rights enough to make it a point of competition for businesses how fucked up is neoliberalism guys
1: there was two other things in the in the podcast that that touch on this one was where someone was arguing uh where they were like well if these pscs uh you know violate local laws well those countries are definitely gonna kick them out like they're definitely and you're like what the fuck are you talking about and then the other thing was multiple episodes they didn't even talk about the people on the ground but they talked about the, the PSC workers and as you were saying about Molly don't creating, call them workers sorry slavery employees the slavers, the slave slavers. no they're slavers they're not workers they're, they're not workers drivers. they're slavers um they're indentured slave drivers but you know, the thing that Molly was working on that's what they talked about well how can we make sure as uh slavers their their rights aren't being met how do we create a mechanism to make sure where their rights aren't getting like that's what they're fucking talking about they don't give a shit about the people on the ground
3: it's it's i mean for all the bluster for like all the like output not just the icoca but groups like it do i mean really you just laid it out there they don't do anything they're essentially a jobs program for people like Molly. Like that's what they're, that's their actual function is to just teach people like Molly how to do this
2: shit. And they're smoke screens, right? This is what I I found in your thread so compelling. Joining the ICOCA, it just gives governments and companies a smoke screen or a pretense.
3: We're members of the ICOCA we we would be expelled if we violated human rights you can see in yeah, our charter exactly
2: it gives them a pretense on which to legitimize their abusive behaviors by saying that they've taken steps to f- to fulfill their obligations to human rights so again pscs are often protecting operatives that in themselves exist in violation of human rights but like whatever in other words the icoca is protecting industries that by definition are engaging in human rights violations what the actual fuck it doesn't make any sense to have an organization that oversees slave drivers to make sure they're treating slaves well maybe don't have slaves like i don't know what the answer is here but like the answer is to
3: have an organization that oversees the organizations <laughs> that oversee the slave drivers yes. we, to make we have sure. that it's, it's called the, called the UN. u.n it's true it's the u.n <laughs>
2: Understand why they're not also like trying to regulate extractive industries more, rather than oh, you know, oh, yeah, well, of course we know. <laughs> of course,
3: this is <laughs> terrible. So then you know Molly comes back. You know there's all this international service. She came back to Vermont, worked as assistant attorney general, and then runs for office. And uh, you know I think a lot of people would probably say, well, even if they agree with everything we just talked about and believe it, well, what does that have to do with Vermont? Does it really matter? And I think the best way to highlight why it matters so much is to look at Molly's donors when she actually ran for lieutenant governor. Who who has an interest in seeing this woman's career advance? So we've got Christos Santos, attorney advisor at USAID,
1: which is literally a CIA
3: front. USAID is literally a <laughs> CIA front. This is why I say she's CIA. Like, USAID, you cannot exaggerate the extent to which USAID is just the fucking CIA. They don't do anything else. They're like, they're a, they're, they're a payday loan front for the CIA. <laughs> they're the yeah. worst thing ever. You cannot exaggerate how bad USAID is. Okay.
1: Then there is uh, the U.S. Army Chair at the National War College. The fuck is that? Why does he care who's the Lieutenant Governor of Vermont? Right, and a, a, a powerless position. Uh, the senior advisor for the Southeast Asian Affairs at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Molly never went to the Kennedy School outright, so that's its own interesting thing. We've got a foreign service officer for the Department of State. We have the director of congressional affairs at Microsoft. we have got a bunch of tech congressional coordinators. That's the most prominent one. That is yep. horrifying. U.S. public policy for Facebook. There's a healthcare lobbyist. The executive, former executive vice president of planning, policy, and government affairs for CBS. Like, that's a big fucking position. Like, that to me is, like, why would you give to, to Molly? And then uh, the senior director of security and compliance for Marriott International. Who are utilizers of private security contractors. And... Um, for me, when when I started researching this, what stuck out was that it's not just Molly.
3: No, I mean Molly is the is the sharpest edge of the spear, the 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 very tip. You know, probably the most qualified, has the best resume, but is is certainly not alone in even Vermont So this politics.
2: this podcast is for a just the tip delivery. Thing?
3: <laughs> just the tip.
1: <laughs>
2: Sorry, I haven't There's, made enough dick jokes today.
3: No, you haven't. You have. I mean, it's a,
1: it's been a very serious episode, so. In Burlington, and this is just, it's crazy to me that in Burlington, a city the size of 40,000 people, we have two different companies whose job, uh, Pitfeed, as you were talking about, like, there is a higher level above all of this. And that higher level is the people who have to get access with these corporations to local government officials. Because without that, they're not going to be able to come in and just take these resources, Right. Like you need this other organization that's gonna be the the go between hmm. between corporations. Yeah, intermediary. Yeah, and in Burlington we have two of those companies here. We have TetraTech, Tech, uh, which has is an international development office, global consulting firm providing practical and sustainable international development services. Which outside of the D.C. area, Burlington is one of four of their offices. Like we're not talking New York, L.A., San Francisco.
3: Burlington has one of them. I think a big facet of kind of these types of people showing up more in Vermont is the transformation of Burlington into a, a third list like gestat or Davos. Yes, yeah, yep. It's a resort town you can live in and still participate in the global neoliberal yeah, project. Yeah, we've, we've talked about how, how
1: Burlington, Vermont essentially is becoming a second Davos. Um, and the other one is Resonance. And I bring up Resonance for a couple of reasons. One is that there's a city councilor, Zariah Hightower, who works there and has traveled across uh, the globe uh, on their behalf to, to grease up the, the sweaty hands of corrupt officials around the world. But Resonance also, like, I just want to read some of their clients. Uh, we've got USAID. I mean, you can
3: stop that. <laughs> There's no reason to do business with USAID except to do CIA shit. There's literally no other reason. We've got PepsiCo,
1: Microsoft, Unilever, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Holy shit. Oxfam, the Australian government, uh, the British Council, who is also part of the ICOCA, well, the government, the British government is, uh, Google, we have Barrick, which is a gold company out of Canada, which is also a member of the ICOCA. We have Arico Gold. We have the U.S. Department of State. We have Ferraro Rocher. And then we also have TetraTech which also has a division in Burlington. So well, like I said, thick as thieves. You in in a lot of ways there's no
3: reason to differentiate a lot of these firms.
1: Totally not. Totally not. But, but it's still it's 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 not just Molly. Right? Like as as you're saying, Burlington and Vermont is becoming a second Davos and and is becoming so enmeshed
3: in this neoliberal uh, slave industry. I think it's important to point out too how like compatible this is with progressive liberalism. Zariah ran as a like progressive. Berlin's, exactly, <laughs> Zariah not a Democrat. You know, this, we talk a lot about establishment Democrats and Molly's connection to them, but that's largely, it's bourgeois factionalism. It doesn't really matter. And, and a lot of these ideas, you know, Molly for Vermont did not run super progressive, left liberal, anything like that. But on the national scene, she would have read that way. Yeah. And I think a lot of these people would consider themselves uh. progressive liberals, and that's completely compatible with this. Yes. Like there's no structural critique among progressive liberals against this kind of thing. And in a lot of ways, I think often they're the audience. like they're the they eat up all the smoke screen that that these organizations put out harder than a lot the centrists i think are a lot more steely-eyed about it yeah, yeah. i think a lot of the, the kayfabe is to the benefit of the progressive the you know the pinkos
1: yeah because the centrists are far more you
3: know that's just how the world works they've internalized the ethic that like the the market solution is actually the ethical solution right. more yeah. than progressives have you don't have to trick them
2: yeah
1: and then uh tangentially connected Going back to who keeps moving back and coming to fucking Vermont is Garrett Graff, who was the OG Molly Gray. So Garrett Graff, uh, wrote for Politico. He's a former political editor. He is a book author and he moved back to Vermont several years ago to run for Lieutenant governor. And it was decided that he did not meet the requirements to run for Lieutenant governor. This, this fucker. And that's the only way I'm going to describe him. He's friends on Twitter with like John Murad and Del Pozo. Uh, just like, yeah, uh, he talked about how even when he was in D.C., Vermont was his, quote, mental home, end quote,
3: which is just... These motherfuckers astral-projecting <laughs> their residency. I'm actually, I have half of them, half expect Scott Milne to sue Molly over this. I'm like, the guy loves just fucking yeah, kissing I, his I've money away. He's got no other, like, what else is he going to do with it? It's his mom's money. I could definitely see him dumping a couple hundred grand into lawsuit about the residency requirements
1: i want to add a little bit more about garrett
3: and then talk a little bit about what he's written because i think it, it relates so well
1: um he also said in many ways defining residency as solely by physical presence is going to discourage precisely the types of people that we would want to be involved in state government oh boy he said in his facebook post that he was motivated to run for office because of vermont's real and present challenges the state he said needs to rethink government and build a new model for a sustainable efficient democracy garrett worked for the Aspen Institute's cybersecurity and technology program, a public-private collaboration. In uh, 2017, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, Joint Chief of Staff Chairman Joseph Dunford all headlined the Aspen Security Forum. That didn't that didn't bother his sensibilities. He has authored multiple books, including one about the FBI called The Threat Matrix. Now, you might think that this book might be somewhat critical, but instead, he was granted access to never before seen task forces and talked about the profiles of the v- visionary agents who risked their lives to bring down criminals and terrorists both in the US and abroad long before the rest of the country was even paying attention yeah. to terrorism. That's what we need. <laughs> so it's, it's just one more part of this of this the, you know the, the, the spear point and it's just growing <laughs> like the people who move to burlington and, and choose that to, was a really
2: foul image yeah, no, the tip is growing
3: <laughs> the tip is growing gabriel because <laughs> a lot of my thoughts on this is like well, what is this you know you look at molly's resume to bring it back to molly and you're like what is she fucking doing as an assistant AG? you know like this is not someone like, this is quite a resume, right? And, I mean, really, the answer is just, like, well, what else is she going to do, you know, if you want to stay in Vermont? And I think I like to get conspiratorial, as a lot of people do. It's very fun. But, like, it's important to remember that, like, no one's writing this shit down on paper. It's just, like, the incentives get tuned in. I think people like Molly, national security types, spooks, book note of what was going on up here for decades. Bernie, bulk chain print, mm-hmm. bread and puppets, Like the co-op movement, like not all, we can talk about a lot of these things and whether they represent like real leftism or whatever, but like something was happening. And a lot of people were like, either they didn't like it or in case of someone like Madeline Coon like that's embarrassing. To someone with Madeline coonan's career—that's like, oh, uh yeah. not some weird puppet show hippies in your state like fucking hide a draft dodger right in, under the FBI's nose? Like some crazy shit happened in Vermont in the eighties, and and basically like there was a a push to bring people like Molly back to Vermont instead of them going somewhere else. To build their careers bring them back here getting two birds stoned at once you know you're 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 building your base in the region and you're growing the project abroad and you're building all those connections
1: and you're doing it with locals garrett graff is the son of a vermonter who is an ap reporter in vermont for like 30 years so that's the best part is that you're getting locals who are then able to run on this well i grew up here this is my home and and it works
3: and i think specifically a very specific example of this that i think actually was coordinated molly in particular is is aimed at the heart of vermont's third party the progressive party like I think Malin Koonin would love nothing more than to see the end of the progressive. The VD Dems in general have long just absolutely hated that they've had to deal with this junior partner. And I mean, there's not a single progressive elected that wouldn't just be a left wing Democrat anywhere else in the country. Like yeah. there's really no progressives who are any more radical than Democrats in liberal areas. But we have this third party and Again, it's fucking embarrassing, like independents and third party people routinely just egg and face the VT Dems and someone like Molly and frankly, someone like Zariah, even though she is a progressive, you know, people who can weaponize this kind of identity, but still have the professional training to, to think along the lines of this hegemony are explicitly there to crush the third party in Vermont. And you're seeing results of that already. I mean, they got walloped this last yeah. election. Yeah. You're going to see Molly knife the Progs and probably be governor or representative.
2: And that's again, that was going. the uh, the point that we opened with, right? So so it's it's good that we're ending on this. Like we we must have proved our thesis that we were going to set out to show how neoliberalism and imperialism have beaten back Vermont left radicalism, and that Molly Gray is just the latest iteration of that. So that's kind of what we ended on. Good job, guys. Full circle. Yeah
1: pit uh thanks so much for bringing
3: us down this ridiculous rabbit hole which turned out to be less ridiculous than i thought thanks for having me it was a lot of fun and i agree i think you start and this seems like crazy crazy shit and then you're like actually this is really boring <laughs> and then you got the uh the thesis this is fucking crazy the antithesis this is really boring but the synthesis is it's like oh this is actually fine yeah well thanks for having me yeah thanks The Brandon Del Pozo private security contractors. That rules. Yeah,
0: you know, it, it it's a really tough nut to crack.
3: <laughs> Sorry.